Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Julia Brown, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, coming to you today from the Australian Centre for Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. This is the fourth episode in our STS season. We bring you an interview with Dr Jackie Hepner, an early career fellow at the ANU. Jackie found her way into anthropology after experiencing firsthand what it is like to be attacked for your choice of research topic. She started out in the field of science communication and she set out to do a PhD on wind turbine syndrome, which is the name given to the poor health conditions that some people living near wind farms claim to experience because of exposure to wind turbines. I will let Jackie explain the agony of what happened when she tried to research such a topic, but the pushback she got led her to research instead, silencing in academia. Jackie's podcast, based on her PhD research, is called You Need to Shut Up, and it's a must-listen. Jackie's TFS blog, Applying Mary Douglas's Framework of Moral Disgust, is also linked in the show notes. What today's interview makes clear is how anthropological approaches, including reflexivity and openness, can allow us to make use of isolating research experiences, particularly when it comes to public health studies. Now, in some ways, this episode is an ode to ANU's anthropology professor, Simone Dennis. Like Jackie, it was with the fearless supervision of Simone and an introduction to the writings of Dame Mary Douglas that first inspired me, too, to pursue anthropology in the public health space. Jackie and I talk about the slippery slope that ensues with mainstream messages that all research is conditional and the identity issues for researchers who have built their career around one idea and the difficulties with changing one's mind should contrary evidence enter the picture. On that note, I'm so glad that we talked about what is happening in risk-averse Australia in the space of illicit drug research. Oh, and we do discuss the limits of university policies in dealing with academic freedom issues. Anyway, here it is. Let's dive straight into Jackie's gripping introduction to research silencing. I started in 2013, very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, thinking that this issue of wind turbine syndrome had become extremely politicised. There were, you know, moratoriums on new wind developments. We had the Prime Minister and Treasurer at the time calling them hideous and eyesore. And there were people in local communities near wind farms that felt, for whatever reason, that the wind farms were causing them health problems. Now, scientists were saying this is physically impossible. This is not a thing. And anyone who believes that wind farms cause health problems are crazy or they're in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry. And I kind of thought, look, neither of these positions are particularly productive. Clearly, these are people sort of yelling at each other into the void. We're not really getting anywhere. So I sort of went into it thinking, I'm going to be the, the one person that can get to the bottom of this. I'm going to look at it from you know, a neutral, objective position, and I'm going to figure out what's going on here. It became clear quite quickly that it was the worst possible time to be doing the research and that I was probably the worst person to be doing the research. And why was that? 
Well, I was 23, 24 from a major city, from a major university. And most of the people that I was hoping to interview were people who were living in quite rural areas, low socioeconomic status, low levels of education. They had been apparently burned by academics before. So there was a lot of hostility towards researchers trying to work in this space. I'm happy to say I was quite naive, thinking that all I had to do was have good intentions and that was enough to kind of do research in this highly politicised area. The gatekeepers of those communities, the people that I had to sort of win over in order to interview people in those communities, basically said, we don't trust you. We won't let you interview anybody. We won't let you come into these communities because you are going to betray them or lie about them or otherwise misrepresent them. There's nothing you can do unless you admit that wind turbine syndrome is a real physical illness. So I said, well, I obviously can't do that. You know, my ethics protocol forbids me from doing anything that would exacerbate health concerns. There were anti-wind groups, the people who I tried to recruit through, and the Australian newspaper, so one of Australia's major broadsheet newspapers, basically told their readers, their subscribers, that I was not to be trusted, that I was in the pocket of the wind industry, that I was not a real researcher, that I was not really trying to represent their best interests, and that in fact their subscribers should hang up on me, delete my emails, and even report me to the Australian Health Practitioners Registration Agency. It was sort of, mm, do I try and triangulate this based on Senate inquiries or newspaper articles, or do I just give up on this line of inquiry entirely? That and must have been so difficult. Yeah, it was pretty devastating. It took a few months to sort of build my self-esteem back up. I think that I couldn't understand why people couldn't see that I had good intentions. But around that time, I became aware of the work of an anthropologist, Professor Simone Dennis, who was looking at smoking. And I heard her speak in public about the awkward process she was undergoing, which was asking for permission from people who had sent her hate mail to use in her book. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. This is a fellow researcher who is, you know, quite used to hostility, who's quite used to being attacked, and she seems to be making it work for her. You know, she seems to be able to turn that into data. So I quickly met up with her. I told her about my experience. I said, what interests me here is that this seems to be a very emotional terrain. I mean, as much as I thought I was going to change the world, I was, you know, a second year PhD student who had not collected any data, had not conducted a single interview. What impact did they think I was going to have? I did not see myself as a credible threat. And so the response to me seemed, if nothing else, just incredibly disproportionate. And so when I started speaking to Simone about it, she said, look, that's something that we should probably home in on. And so I built up a list of academics and researchers who had experienced the sorts of attacks that I'd experienced, the sorts of attacks that Simone had experienced, and really wanted to speak to them about their experiences and get to why their work elicited these very visceral responses. What are some key things that anthropology was useful for in this process? So I used a reflexive framework again, something that Simone taught me. So as I said earlier, you know, I went into this thinking that objectivity and neutrality were, were sort of the name of the game, that you couldn't do good research if you were in any way, you know, biased, if you had your own opinions or experiences or values that might influence the research. 
And when I spoke to Simone about this, she said, well, hang on a minute, no. Like you have critical personal experience in this field. The fact that you find yourself sharing your stories with participants is not a bad thing. The fact that you find yourself saying, don't worry, I'm not going to perpetuate what happened to you again. I'm not going to make it worse. I'm going to do everything I can to tell your story with honesty and authenticity and integrity. That's a good thing. That's a research strength. You're using your yourself as an effective research tool. So don't ever be worried that you're overstepping something. As long as you're conscious of it and that you're acknowledging it and that you're using it to get the best data, then there's nothing to be kind of ashamed of. And so I did. And I could feel within many of my interviews, participants opening up, you know, their first couple of responses would be quite short, you know, fairly factual. Yes, this happened. No, this didn't happen. And once I opened up and once I was able to say, look, I've been through something similar. I have empathy for you and for your experience. I understand how traumatic it has been. I felt them opening up and I heard in their responses that they trusted me and that that we had built a genuine rapport with each other. And some of them even said that quite explicitly. If I hadn't heard that you've been through something similar or if someone hadn't vouched for you in this space, because I used a lot of snowball sampling, then I probably wouldn't have talked to you. So I really needed to talk to them to get the sort of impact from them and and how they were processing the attacks on them. And to situate your findings within your own positionality. Absolutely. So you could really comment on the breadth of experience rather than, I guess, reporting back data that might not have meant as much. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I was able to say, this is something that I see again and again, or this is something that has this incredibly deep impact. I was able to sort of pass out some of the things that they were saying based on my own experience, based on what I know about, you know, human values and human frailties and things like this. So a good example of that was a couple of participants were attacked by people outside academia. So most of my participants were were sort of attacked from, from their own colleagues. But there were a few that it was mostly, you know, interest groups or private citizens that took up the fight against them. Something I heard from those participants were things like, this research isn't meant for a public audience or, you know, I understand that they just misinterpreted the data, that, you know, they didn't really get it. My research is not for public consumption. And I think, you know, from a science communication perspective, this is fairly condescending and kind of patronising. Because of my experience, I completely understand the instinct to dismiss attacks on your work when they come from outsiders as just ignorance, because I think it makes it a lot easier to process and a lot easier to kind of build up your self-esteem if you're saying, well, they just don't understand. And so if you're being told that your work is killing people or dangerous or awful or, you know, the worst thing someone's ever seen, not worth the paper it's printed on by a colleague, I think that's very, that's a very different issue. I think it it can be much harder to brush off and to dismiss. Yes. And on that note, I think we should quickly distinguish between the concept of academic freedom and freedom of expression, freedom of speech that occurs in a more public realm generally. Yeah. So for me, Academic freedom is something that is unique to universities, unique to researchers, 
And it means that we are able to research, teach and publish based on any line of inquiry that we think is worth pursuing. And so it's about academic autonomy. It's about the academic choosing, hey, you know, this seems like it's an underexplored area or this thing doesn't really make sense or this data doesn't add up and we're able to pursue that without censure, without penalty. I think, unfortunately, academic freedom has been conflated a lot with freedom of speech and with freedom of expression. I mean, I see it as a fairly obvious case of bad actors sort of using the term academic freedom as a sort of rhetorical tool because it sounds good and it sounds like a something that's worth protecting when they talk about freedom of speech. And this is usually in regard to no platforming or protests against a particular, you know, speaker in a sort of public setting. And I think what it's important to say is universities don't offer any special freedom of speech protections. They're a public space like any other. And and if they feel that speakers are breaching their policies, they're perfectly within their, their remit to say, we don't accept that speaker. That's not uh, against freedom of speech. That's a private business unless it's someone who is speaking about their research. Now, I would take umbrage at someone who's done genuinely rigorous or methodologically sound research, presenting their ideas and being shut down or being told that they can't present at a conference, for example. I think that's a breach of of academic freedom. But if you're talking about someone who is a provocateur, who prides themselves on making waves and, you know, creating controversy, that's not an issue of academic freedom to me. That's a freedom of speech issue. If someone has done research, has gathered evidence, has analysed their findings, then I think we need to let those ideas out into the public sphere. They might be morally unpleasant, they might be unpalatable, but I think we need to respond to them in a way that is reflective of the work that went into it. Legitimate channels of peer review rather than death threats or or personal attacks on, on someone's character. I want to go back to that area of moral disgust, which I think we're leaning towards now. But before I do, I just want to ask about this issue of whether or not all knowledge in and of itself is valuable or not and Mm -hmm. whether we should be drawing lines around what is worth researching and Mm -hmm. what isn't. I think it's hard because we all have a line. No matter how well-trained we are, I think we all probably have an area of research where we say, (laughs) no, you know, I'm all for academic freedom, but that's where I draw the line. You know, it differs for each person. But I think when we start to say research is bad because it makes me feel sick or it may have these slippery slope consequences down the line, I'm not saying that that should never happen. I think it's important as a society and as academics, I guess, in a more narrow sense, that we have these conversations. I I certainly am not saying we shouldn't have these conversations. But If we start to uncritically let people draw those lines and just say, yep, no, you're right, we don't want our our university brand, you know, associated with that particular research project, I think it's getting into kind of dangerous territory and it it sends the message that all research is conditional, you know, Mm -hmm. and we know that social values change over time and we know that research institutions are already highly reflective of those social values as it is. 
And so if we start to say, no, I don't like that particular area of research and don't worry, it will never get funding, it will never get ethics approval, it will never get published. I think that we're limiting ourselves a lot. Just to get everyone thinking Mm. more about why this is so important, can you think of any examples from your research where that risk was absolutely worth the pain? So I think we've probably seen the most examples of that in illicit drug research. So some of my participants were working in areas like medicinal cannabis. And for a long time, the conversation around cannabis of any kind uh, Mm. was was incredibly polarised, incredibly vicious. And I think that because we've seen a lot of decriminalisation and legalisation in the States and in other countries, I think we are starting to see that shift. I mean, it's still an uphill battle, but a particular participant I'm thinking of said, you know, I think eventually the older generation that are particularly opposed to these sorts of things, like eventually they're they're dying out. You know, the people that were really fighting hard aren't there anymore. And I think that some sense can come back into the conversation and we can start to have discussions about you know, when is it efficacious? When might we be overselling the benefits? And actually really start to look at the evidence without ethics committees immediately shutting down the research just because it has the word marijuana in it. And I guess the same could be said for the stuff that's being done around hallucinogens. There's been Mm. this revival. Yeah. And I mean, I really think that depends on where you are. So a lot has been said about Australia kind of missing the psychedelic revolution that Mm. a lot of other countries are well, you know, well in advance, you know, second and third stage clinical trials. And we are... uh, We're still anti-pill testing. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I spoke to a researcher recently who's been trying to get his work through an ethics, a university ethics committee, and no one is looking at it. You know, he's had some limited success with hospitals, but... He's kind of got to the point, he and his colleagues, where they're sort of saying, this will probably never get a university's stamp on this. It's pretty sad considering how far advanced other countries are. Uh, mm. And, and we, could, we could be competitive with that, but there is this sort of knee-jerk response to, to psychedelic research. On this knee-jerk response, let's talk now about moral disgust Mm -hmm. and the transgression of boundaries. Yeah, again, with the help of Simone, I was talking a lot uh, in the work I was sending her about, you know, knee-jerk, visceral, disgust, and I hadn't quite sort of found the language to explain it. And she pointed me to the work of Mary Douglas in identifying boundaries and this idea that, you know, we don't actually know a boundary is there until disgust is elicited. And so, uh, and then I found this growing literature on moral disgust, which is ideas we find morally reprehensible trigger similar responses to physical disgust. And so the response is, yuck, (laughs) get that away. I don't want to deal with that. Get it away from us. Dispose of it as quickly as possible. That resonated a lot with me. The sort of language that my participants were using were things like, you know, it was shut down. It was to completely destroy the research. It shouldn't be happening. This person needs to get away. This person needs to get out of my research field. You know, shut up, stop it, get it out of my sight. It seemed to me to be anathema to what we think academia is about and what we think research is about. So 
you figure out a gap in the literature or you land on a research problem, come up with a hypothesis, for example, you gather evidence, you analyse the evidence, publish. You might get some tough questions in the peer review process, but they're to further the research, they're to strengthen the research. Everyone's sort of acting in good faith. And what I was finding is that even people who espouse the value of academic freedom were putting those aside when it it came to research they found morally disgusting. It's really, to me, suggesting that a boundary has been crossed and all the old rules are out the window. It suggests that academic freedom is much more complicated, much more contingent than we think, and that the boundaries are sort of shifting based on societal values. And peer review is, is sometimes used as a sort of, again, it's sort of used as a sort of rhetorical tool to justify the attack. So many of my participants were shut down through what we would consider legitimate peer review channels. But when you look into the circumstances there, you see that the same paper is rejected 20 times. And in the peer reviewer comments, it's not, uh, you know, there's this problem with the methodology or there's this problem with the analysis, or I don't know how you quite got from you know, A to B in your recommendations, for example, it's the arguments in this paper are untenable, end of story, full stop. I can think of cases where this happens in the medical field where meta-analyses that don't support a type of surgery that the medical system happens to rely a lot on. If researchers come up with findings that challenge that, then things aren't published. So that's tied a lot to funding. And I'm wondering, like when you delve into the area of social science research, it's a bit more personal and Mm -hmm. messy because Mm -hmm. it can't just be put down to funding as such. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it happens for a lot of reasons. And I certainly am not suggesting that every single person who attacks an academic is doing it for moral disgust reasons. But what I found was that the kind of existing explanations for what I call research silencing generally came down to things like vested interests. And they're usually, you know, it's a particular industry or a particular politician or, you know, someone will suffer if this research gets out or it will tarnish someone's reputation or it will hurt someone's bottom line. And that's that was the case in some of the uh, cases I looked into, but it seemed to go further than that a lot of the time. And there wasn't a clear kind of monetary loss posed by a particular research. And so I I sort of thought, okay, well, clearly it's more complicated than just vested interests. And I think a lot of it comes down to a sense of identity. I don't think any of us like to admit we're wrong. And I think that for a lot of the people who attacked my participants, it was as simple as, you know, I've been telling people this for the last 20 or 30 years. You know, I've built a career on on this particular fact. And now this has been called into question. I'm not ready to admit that I've been wrong. I'm not ready to admit that it was all for nothing. And that maybe I've even caused harm, especially if you're working in public health or a medical field. If I've been giving people the wrong advice for all this time, you know, what does that mean for the treatment I've given or for the advice I've given or the recommendations I've made? And so I think it's a lot easier to get defensive and it's a lot easier to say, No, they're clearly wrong. I'm fine. Mm. (laughs) I'm in the right and they're wrong. And I think that especially in the case of meta-analyses and and things like this, it's, it's very easy to say, especially to a public audience, you know, this is just one paper. Uh, But Mm. we know that meta-analyses are usually based on, you know, dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of papers. And so 
in some of the cases I looked at, there was this dismissal. And again, I couldn't see a clear vested interest other than this sort of identity stuff and not wanting to admit, you know, you've been wrong. And so, you know, there was a meta-analysis of of 97 studies in this one case I looked at, over, I think over a million people involved in the, in the data set. And it was dismissed as, you know, rubbish, not worth the paper it's printed on, don't even look at it, you know, it's drivel, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, they're saying this person is telling people it's okay to eat themselves to death. (laughs) And it's kind of, I can't really see how the two things can be true. Like, I don't think you can say it's rubbish and not worth paying attention to. And also it poses this huge danger. So I think that, again, we're seeing this not particularly logical or or Mm. proportionate response, which again suggests that it's a lot easier to just say these people are wrong. I'm right. Anyone in the world that has been in the wrong before, that capacity to admit it, you know, it does take a lot. So do you think that any of your research participants did deep down feel they might have been in the wrong or do you think it was so devastating that they couldn't actually believe it? No, look, many of them were because of the attacks on them and because they were constantly being criticised and challenged Many of them, I mean, went through much longer, much more rigorous peer review processes than most papers would go through. So because they were publishing controversial or, you know, research that went against the grain or the the established wisdom, uh, they, they would find themselves going through four or five peer review processes. Some went through misconduct inquiries. Some, you know, was more trial by media. And many of them said to me, you know, I double checked, I triple checked, I quadruple checked. I had other people look over it to make sure that I wasn't missing something. There's probably some exceptions, but I think many of them really did try and get it right. So I think it's likely that some of them, because they were under attack, you know, became quite defensive and maybe it blinded them from from seeing it. But um, I would say the majority were trying to act in good faith and were kind of surprised at the response. So what do you think are some things that universities can keep in mind when they're trying to manage controversial research, I suppose? I think it's really important for universities to take academic freedom and academic autonomy seriously. I think ANU has taken some great steps to, you know, to change their academic freedom statement to say that all research should be open as long as it's, you know, underpinned by evidence and and rigour then all researchers should have the freedom to pursue lines of inquiry that they deem important. The other thing is to acknowledge that even universities that have the best academic freedom policies can find themselves silencing researchers through other ways that those at the top don't necessarily realize. So after my thesis was first published, so it was it was all approved, everything was signed off and I put a copy in the library as I was told to do. And for one golden week, I was looking at, you know, the numbers of of downloads going up. I was having, you know, emails from from strangers across the world saying, you know, I've read your thesis. It means so much to me. You know, this same thing happened to me. I had some Twitter trolls that were going through it kind of line by line with a microscope. But that was all sort of expected. And then after a week, I got an email saying that there'd been a complaint to the vice chancellor about my thesis and that for, you know, an indefinite period of time while they investigated it, it would be removed from the library. And four and a half months went by. I was due to graduate 
soon <laughs> in the next couple of weeks. And it all sort of came to a head that if my thesis wasn't in the library by this date, that I wouldn't be able to graduate. And, you know, I had to send some kind of strongly worded emails to say, well, actually, I had uploaded it. I'd done the right thing. I think it's been sitting on someone's desk. I think no one really knows what to do about it. I ended up having an academic misconduct inquiry of which I was cleared of any wrongdoing, but it was still an incredibly upsetting experience. Again, finding myself sort of defending my integrity. And for those four and a half months, you know, I really didn't know where I stood. I didn't know if I was able to turn any of the thesis into papers. I didn't know if it was worth trying to apply for conferences. I felt nervous about even sending someone a PDF of the thesis because I wasn't sure if I was allowed to. Uh, of course, the concerns about whether I was allowed to graduate were, were also pretty upsetting. You know, I had relatives from interstate coming in. And so I think that at the same time that I had been talking with members of the executive and the academic board about changes to ANU's academic freedom policy, I was going through this Kafkaesque, mm. you know, bureaucratic nightmare. I think it's really important just to say, look, universities can do the right thing on paper, uh, but they need to look at their processes. They need to look at how these sorts of complaints are managed, how individual researchers are are managed through this process, how the communication happens. Because, you know, you know I really felt like I was left in the lurch for a significant period of time uh, at, at a time when I should have been publishing, I should have been getting my work out there, I should have been sort of banging on that drum. And I didn't really know whether I was even allowed to do that. And so that's an example of this sort of everyday silencing that I'm talking about. And so I think that plenty of universities will have similar problems in their in their bureaucratic processes and again they don't see them until they've crossed the boundaries that's right so that's right and, and it became clear once I'd gone through the academic misconduct inquiry that the reason it had sat on someone's desk for so long was well we just don't know how to deal with issues like this you know our misconduct policy applies generally to you know undergraduates with issues of plagiarism you presented this very tricky example you know you're a PhD student looking at research silencing, you know, it was sort of an irony sandwich and we didn't really know what to do with it. And we probably should consider changing our, our misconduct rules to reflect that. And so, I, again, I think it's all good and well to have excellent policies and what's written down, but if researchers are sort of sitting on findings, not sure if they can publish, getting hounded in, in the media or hounded by their colleagues, I think that the university needs to have a look at how they can ensure the, the researcher feels supported and genuinely has access to academic freedom. Are there any other things that you want to add that you find yourself thinking about a lot that is tricky to resolve? I don't know whether it's something that I would like to resolve, but I think something that I find myself thinking a lot is is the importance of being self-aware and, and self-reflective. So obviously I used a reflexive framework in my own research, but I think it's really shaped the rest of my life in, in a lot of ways. And I think that it's not fun and it's not easy, but I've become a lot better at accepting when I'm wrong and, and saying, yeah, no, that particular worldview I held, <laughs> that particular opinion I held, it wasn't actually based on good evidence. It was based on something I heard when I was eight years old or it was based on 
something someone told me, you know, when I was 12. And it's not actually, it's not something that we have to kind of die on the hill for. It, it's mm. something that, that we can all do. I think it's not just about academics. It's not just about people working in controversial fields. And it's not just people who are attacking people doing work in controversial fields. I think it's a tool that we can all use effectively to sort of be more empathetic, to be better citizens, to be more compassionate. And I think that it really just comes down to to thinking about why we think what we think, how we think what we think, and just acknowledging our limitations, acknowledging that we're not always right, uh, and being comfortable saying that, I think, mm. is, is something that sort of never goes astray. No, I think that's very powerful. Thank you. And, yeah, in regards to STS in particular, why does anthropology matter? For me, anthropology matters because... I think it gives us tools that have been seen uh, within science and anathema. So I said before that I thought that I had to be neutral and, and objective. And I think that reflexivity is not the opposite of objectivity. You know, they're perfectly compatible. Adopting a reflexive methodology helps every researcher. It doesn't matter what field they're in. And so I think realising that we all have values, perspectives, experiences, biases. I don't even like using the word biases, but anyway, that they're not things that we need to shove in a box and, and put away, that they're actually things we can use to be better researchers. And I think you know, there's plenty of examples of scientists doing this perfectly effectively. It's just that it doesn't make it into the image we have of science and scientists. It doesn't make it into scientific journals. It's not something that we're happy to kind of talk about. So it doesn't help anyone to pretend that that scientists are, you know, automatons just going about their, their mm. business without uh, thinking at all about what they're doing. I just don't think we give them the tools to express that particularly well. Mm. Uh, and so I think that anything that allows scientists to, to be better humans, more reflective humans, I don't think anything bad can come from that. No, I, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much, Jackie. That was a really interesting conversation and I'm sure listeners will enjoy it as well. My pleasure. That was it, me and Dr. Jackie Hepner. Today's episode was produced by me, Julia Brown, with help from the other familiar strangers, Jodie Lutrambath, Simon Theobald, and our newest familiar stranger, Kylie Dolan. Our executive producers are the brilliant Diana Cato and Matthew Fung, and a nod also to our wonderful interns at the moment, Dominic Harvey-Taylor and Karen Zhang. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast and you can find us on iTunes, Spotify and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and it helps make us better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet us at TFSTweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. If you haven't joined our Facebook chats group yet, please do that and let's not be strangers anymore. Our music's by Pete Dabro. Special thanks today to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks and until next time, keep talking strange.